welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And this is our review of Back to the Future, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Thomas F. Wilson, and Crispin Glover. Directed by Robert Zemeckis, released in 1985 on a budget of $19 million, grossed $388 million at the box office. Brian, I think this has been on your film strip shortlist since we started the podcast, man. It absolutely. I mean, who doesn't want to review one of the classic 80s movies of all time? I mean, this is one of those movies that from the 80s that stands up to this day and you can watch and enjoy. You don't even have to be in the moment. Like, a lot of these 80s movies we see are so dated to the time. Yes. And while you got some of that in here with, you know, cars and dresses and all that stuff, it's cool because it goes back even further into the 50s and you see all that kind of stuff. So it stands up today, if you ask me. I, I really enjoy this movie. So I was always wanting to do this. And to be fair, this is the second time we tried to do it. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> we did record this episode years ago, and yeah. my half of the audio just went kaputs. Like, I think you still have whatever you said. Uh, I have but, my half of the audio still, but it does no good now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it was a lot. I think you only had two kids back then. <laughs> and, uh, when we Probably, that, if yeah. that's the case, that would be seven years. <laughs> yeah, easy, easily, man. I can, I can believe it. It's one of those great lost episodes that we talk about from films like American Pie with Anna, just oh, lost yeah. to the ether. Mm. You know, one of the funniest things y'all will never hear because it's just gone. But no, man, Back to the Future. It's you talk about like revisiting eighties movies and how well they hold up. You know, Nick and I did St. Elmo's fire back in December and did that definitely does not hold up <laughs> in, in terms of like being today, but it is the epitome of the yuppie eighties. If you want to talk about that. And you know, the funny thing is, man, even about this one, even though I know this movie's 1985, I never think about this as an eighties movie. And I think it's because the story is about so much else and we'll get into that as we go but when did you first see this did you see this in 85 when it came out in theaters i don't think so i mean that i would have only been what seven or eight at the time if i'd seen it in the theater so i don't believe i did i think we, we watched it as kids but it was a couple years probably after the fact and on vhs rental type thing and um, yeah I fell in love with it when I, as a kid just really enjoyed it and it was one of those things that we would rent from time to time uh, just over and over again because we really liked it and then of course once the the second and the third one come out later um, you know we we've had copies uh, since then and still to this day I mean I think I bought the the three DVD set when it came out I've got the blu-ray set now when it came out so I mean we just it's one of those franchises we just really love. Yeah. I, man, 1985, I've told part of this story before back on the Halloween retrospective. People want to go back and revisit that. But, you know, I had the bicycle accident when I was a kid, all that stuff. This came out the summer I was recovering from that. So this was the first movie I went and saw in a theater when I finally got out of my cast mm. and all of that jazz. And even as a kid at that age, you know, eight years old, I was, I was loved going to the movies with my folks. You know, it was kind of a thing that we all did together. And my parents had heard everybody talking about this movie. 
And I, I was like, eh, I don't really, you know, I mean, I kind of was aware <laughs> of who Michael J. Fox was. I didn't know who Christopher Lloyd was. But I was like, eh, I don't know. Alex Keaton, eh. You know, I could kind of take or leave that. Like, I hated Family Ties. It was just not my show, right? You know, I think it was more for, like, my brother's age. <laughs> but they had heard so much about it, and they're like, ah, it looks fun, you know. And I saw the words, though, that sold me. It was Steven Spielberg, who was executive no, producer on this, which basically his job was to run interference with the studio because Zemeckis is his buddy. So, and I know that now, but at the time, all I knew was like, ooh, Spielberg, because, you know, that was E.T. and Jaws and every other cool thing I like, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I remember going to see this first movie I saw in theaters coming out of that, that the summer of surgery, I guess I'd call it. And I mean, I was blown away. I mean, just ate it up. Um, I think we saw it twice in theaters and then taped it off like a showtime or something. It just wore the VHS out through mm-hmm. the years. And, um, yeah, I talked about it with my friends. Um, it, this is one of the, the rare franchises where I've seen every, every movie in the theater. Um, multiple times. I saw all of them at least twice, uh, in the theater at some time or another. Um, cause it was just a big part of growing up. And, and being a part of this and like playing it on the playground and stuff and just being fascinated by the whole idea and the DeLorean and all, all that stuff. And it's, it's stuck with me for years. And it, it's probably been 10 years since I watched the sequels, but maybe once a year or so, this will pop up on a streaming service or something, or I'll just go find it and watch it. It's been something that I've, I've, you know, spent time with now for all these years. And um, it's fun to go back and do those on this show because we've had a lot of experience doing that now through the years um, where for a long time I was afraid to go back and do stuff that you just love when you're a kid. Cause there's always that yeah. fear of like, Oh, I'm going to watch that and it's going to be awful. <laughs> and and Which happens. <laughs> yes, it, it, do, it does happen. But um, you know, we, we kind of struck gold with most of this that, that at least I've been a part of. Uh, but yeah, this is a big one, man, all along the way. And I mean, I have a feeling like the popcorn ratings kind of telegraphed themselves on this. But what's fun about this for me is to revisit it and just think about what it, the movie's trying to say and that it, it actually has a point. And it's kind of a simple point. But I think it's neat that the the whole impetus of this was that the co-writer, Bob Gale, was thumbing through some of his dad's stuff and found his dad's high school yearbook. And apparently, like, his dad never talked about growing up or anything with him because he was like, my dad was the high school president. I didn't know that. I started looking at the stuff he was involved in, and I've been like, I would not have been friends with my dad. That's what he said. <laughs> and, he, and he got to thinking about that. Was like, yeah, what, what would it be like for, you know, a kid in the 1980s to go back and meet their parents, and how would that work? And then just over seven years, him and Robert Zemeckis just kind of messed with this script. And, I mean, they had it optioned for a long time, and it, it just took forever to finally, you know, come to fruition but i think it's neat that it's one of those things they just worked on and worked on and worked on and i mean gail's written a lot of stuff but this is definitely the thing that he is most known for and in a lot of ways it launched robert zemeckis into this you know stratosphere of a career that he's had as a director i mean he's an academy award-winning director he's done good stuff he's done some not so great stuff too but he's you know he's produced a lot of hits too and um is a really He's got a lot of the Spielberg touch with the way the camera works and all that stuff. And you can kind of feel it on this movie, you know. And um, so it's it's neat to hear them tell the backstory of it. But that it's just as simple as, like, what I've been friends with my dad in high school. Well, I guess we should do a plot summary here, Brian, and uh, see how it goes. Marty McFly is a teenager in Hill Valley, California, who wishes more than just about anything that he could rise above his family's status in town. His father, George, is a wimp still bullied by 
my high school classmate Biff Tannen. His siblings are working dead-end jobs, and his mother Lorraine is an alcoholic. He doesn't handle rejection well and is often at odds with the school principal. Marty has two friends, his girlfriend Jennifer and Doc Brown, an eccentric inventor-scientist who has squandered his family's fortune to realize his own dream of inventing a time machine. Marty agrees to meet Doc to see how his new invention or to see Marty agrees to meet Doc to see his new invention in action and wow does it work. It's built on the body of a 1981 DeLorean stainless steel chassis and fueled by plutonium that Doc ripped off from Libyan nationalists who he promised to build a bomb for but gave them used pinball machine parts. When they show up and shoot Doc, Marty takes off in the DeLorean, which Doc has set to 1955 in a demonstration, and Marty reaches the speed to travel back in time, 88 miles per hour. Back in 1955 Hill Valley, Marty desperately tries to find Doc to get back home, but bumps into his parents, who haven't officially met yet. Things get complicated when Lorraine falls for Marty for the same reason she fell for George. Her father accidentally hit him with a car. Marty coaches his future dad to go out after Lorraine while ducking and dodging Biff. Through many misadventures and hijinks, Marty and Doc find a way to get the time machine powered up for a trip back home, depending on a lightning strike and a mountain of luck. George knocks out Biff, finally kisses Lorraine at the big dance, the moment the future selves had earlier revealed when was when they fell in love. Marty tries to give Doc a letter of warning him of his fate, but Doc will hear none of it. Marty is able to race to the car in time for the lightning strike and sets the time machine back to arrive back a few minutes earlier so he can save Doc. In spite of this, Marty arrives just in time to see Doc shot again and to see himself vanish into the past as the time machine goes back to 1955. As he cries, Doc sits up, revealing he decided it was worth the roll of the dice to read Marty's letter and wore a flak jacket, which saved his life. Marty wakes up the next morning in his old house, but with a very different family. His father is a success and even wrote a novel. His mother is no longer an alcoholic. His siblings are also leading successful lives. And Biff is a car detailer, very scared of George. Jennifer shows up to see Marty's new truck when Doc returns from the future because something has to be done about your kids. Marty, Jennifer, and Doc take off in a now-flying version of the time machine as credits roll. Yeah, that's a good plot summary. It's a little more detailed than maybe what we normally do, but I think it was good to hit all of that to just see how much is crammed into this thing, man. Because you know, a lot of times the, the, the thing about this movie that people remember and have talked about particularly like in you know film Twitter circles and stuff is like that it's the perfect screenplay, right? Everything that's set up pays off somewhere in between the first and the third act. And that's true, but what what I find neat is that it, while it might be the perfect like setup and payoff screenplay, it's got one thing in it that is very unique. The main character has no arc at all. Marty is the same guy at the end that he is at the beginning. It's just all of his wish fulfillment happens uh, for him. And that's a, that's a delicate thing to do. And the director and people that put this together knew that, too. And it would take somebody that had the kind of comic timing that Michael J. Fox has to be able to pull that off. Because otherwise, Marty would come off like a real but Yeah, and, and the fact that he comes – and now he comes off as kind of the slacker of the family, right? I mean, his, his brother and sister are in these successful jobs, and he's, like, yeah. dressed down as a kind of a 
dope in the, in the house. It's kind of like, oh, hmm. <laughs> Maybe you should have uh, wished yourself to be a little smarter, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, we we'll want to talk about all the time travel-y stuff and, and unraveling, but I think it's neat to, to see how this thing starts. And even as a kid, man, before I started playing guitar, this opening was something that I was like, is this what playing oh, guitar is all about? Because it's that great tracking shot where you get you get all this data dump of information. I mean, you see Doc's lab, you see all of his little weird inventions, <clears throat> you see the clock's all going. You hear about the plutonium getting stolen on the news. Um, same newscaster, by the way, that's in the mm. Die Hard movies, by the way. So this is now in the same universe as Die Hard. I just want everybody <laughs> to realize that. And so so John McClane could have arrested Marty at some point in his life. But because Hill Valley can't be far from L.A. But he's in there, and he's you know kicking the skateboard around, and he hooks up that little mini guitar to that humongo wall-sized <laughs> speaker, right, and just cranks it to 11 and blows himself up. Yeah, and I, that was co- pretty cool. And this, I, I probably would have saw this right around the time where I was just starting to learn guitar myself. So uh, it was probably just acoustic at the time. So I'd never seen anything like that before, <laughs> definitely. But uh, pretty cool, and also kind of like, dang, dude. <laughs> One chord and you're right halfway across the room. Oh, uh, listen, man. Years later, I bought a stainless steel guitar pick just <laughs> for that reason. Like that, you know. I was like, I've got to have one of those, even though it sounds like garbage when you try to play with one. It's. It. I was like, I've got to have one because it's the Marty yeah. McFly thing, you know. And I think the guy even in the music store was like, Yeah, Back to the Future sells a lot of these, you know, even in the '90s at that point. Uh, but no, it's. But I. I, I do like the the economic goal way that the film starts to give us all that info. I mean, in the first 10 minutes, you learn everything you need to know about Marty. It, you know, you get to see him, you know, slacking off. He, and then you see him, you realize you know, when Doc calls him that, oh, all the clocks are slow. And he's like, I'm late for school. And he's got to get to school. And, man, I thought, like, could you actually do this? Could you skateboard by, like, hitching rides on the back of people's vehicles? I don't know that that is a I good idea. I think it's a terrible idea. I don't, I've never seen anyone try this before, and hopefully people never did. I, I would imagine a ton of people probably tried it after this movie came out. Um, I don't know if it was really a thing. Maybe in California it was a thing that they did, but I definitely not around here. You don't want to do that. That's a bad, bad idea. No, and even... Even where I was in Alabama, man, like you just don't trust the way people drive. There's no way, you know. But but I think the other thing you get is that it's maybe even just as iconic as this movie is you get mm-hmm. the Huey Lewis song, Power of Love, which Huey Lewis talks about as like the greatest piece of marketing ever invented because the song came out months before the movie did and then you know led up to this big move for the movie. Then the movie was a hit, and then the movie took the song overseas and made Huey Lewis in the news this unreal <laughs> band you know i mean they're basically just a bar band they're kind of the forerunners to hootie and the blowfish and that that kicking song you know is it kind of drives the whole yeah. narrative there and i i this one thing i miss about 80s is there there was a song right like even st elmo's fire is a cheese song but it's a great song for that that uh, movie and i remember power of love and i just have like all these Back to the Future images when I there's hear that certain song, songs that are just so iconic to certain films, and that's definitely one of them. I love how they did it too, uh, having it be the theme to start, and then also you see Marty's band play it at the little talent show rehearsal, and I love the fact that Huey Lewis is in the judging panel and is the one who says, "That's just too loud. <laughs> it's just it's too loud." Yeah. 
Yeah, they, they they play like the yeah. metal version of Power of Love. It's like this ripping guitar part. It doesn't fit the song at all, but you know, it's I I think I think I dreamed about you know being in bands in high school and in college that could try out for the big dance and all that stuff. You know, and I, I did play once uh, with some friends at like a thrown together talent show thing in high school, and we we purposely played the loudest <laughs> stuff we could come up with just so nice. we could be annoying like that. Like we were we were jamming out of the same idea so um i, I yeah it is it's a neat little cameo with uh, with huey lewis there but you get all about marty and all of his insecurity right like he cannot handle rejection he thinks his father's a loser he's never going to go anywhere in life what's he going to do and his girlfriend's trying to cheer him up right because and this is every teenage boy's problem right because like from the time you're 12 to you're like 25 you're basically like two steps from dragging your knuckles on the ground like you're, you're barely <laughs> a functioning human being as a man you know <laughs> women are way much more mature you've got way ahead on us there and that's what usually keeps us together you know until we kind of figure life out and I love how Jennifer is just so like is supportive girlfriend, but it's also like kicking him in the butt. Like, stop feeling sorry for yourself, girl. I really like uh, Claudia Schaefer here, and and you know it's it's a shame she wasn't able to come back for the the sequels, and there's good reason why she couldn't. But uh, I liked her, even though she's just a small part in this. But you get a lot from her early on. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I I remember the first thing I thought of was the. the new character i think it was elizabeth shu who took over for her right and this in the second going wait yeah, that's not yeah. the same girl but anyway yeah she's a great character i mean like you said she's really trying to motivate him like get your tape to the record company i think you're gonna do fine well i can't handle it if they tell me i suck blah 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 blah. which i love that comes back uh in later in the film too. that same line uh which was perfect but uh yeah she's just like you know Come on, let's go. Let's let's get this going. And of course, they're uh, out by the uh, old clock tower, chatting it up, and and uh, about to get the kiss. And then Dad shows up, and she's got to go. She gives him the old note on the back of the cl- save the clock tower piece, and I thought it was good. I like her character a lot. I mean, she's not in here a whole lot, right? I mean, she's at the beginning and at the end, mm-hmm. and she'll get used a little bit more in the second one, but yeah. But she's a critical character for him. Yeah, but it, it, she, yeah, she's there to, to again reinforce the fact that Marty has. What's interesting is he has the same self confidence issues right. his father has that he'll actually go get to see. But you talked about it that he, you know his his father writes a lot, and he asks him like, "You ever get that stuff published?" He's like, "Oh no, no, I couldn't deal with it if somebody told me it wasn't any good." And it's like, "Oh wow, I'm reliving. Like I don't think I'm anything like my dad, but yeah, I'm exactly reliving like his that, life yeah. and." Yeah, exactly. And, and you you get the whole bit about the clock tower and the save the clock, which this has got to be the worst piece of civic <laughs> engagement ever. The thing got struck by lightning 30 years ago. It hasn't worked. And there's people that want to keep it that way. Yeah, I mean, what a look at Hill thing. Valley. It's a dump, right? I love the I love the, the mayor truck coming by. Right. Mayor Gort is Gordy. Goldie, Goldie, that's Goldie it, yes. Wilson. Uh, if you want yes. progress and prosperity, vote Mayor Gore, reelect Mayor Goldie. And I love the fact that when we go back to 1955, it's a different guy with the same thing. The truck going around with the same exact message, just hilarious. But yeah, what a what a crappy way to fundraise for that thing. <laughs> Well, in in the fifties, Hill Valley was this sort of up and coming, sprawling yeah. community that was just just growing, and now in the eighties, 
it's kind of hit what it's going to be. It's just suburbia. You know, it's just, eh, you know, it's got a Burger King and there's a mall and, you know, it's got what you need, but it's not like a, it's not a destination place that people are moving to. You know, there's no economic council of Hill Valley that holds meetings like where I live here in Charlotte talking about like, how can we attract more outside talent? Like nobody's doing that in Hill Valley. You know, and, and they wouldn't want to anyway, because come and see our broken clock tower, uh, which I mean, it, it is, it's funny though, but I, I love the joke of that because I I grew up in a town in North Alabama that reminded me a lot of Hill Valley, even though it was in North Alabama, that was very much about like keep things exactly the way that they were in 1962 mm-hmm. and never let it change. And obviously you can't live like that, right? You yeah, can't do no, that. And I grew up in a small town too where everything was the same and it's finally changing now. I mean, many, many years later, but uh, the library was always over here. There's always a general store here. There's always, this is going to be here and we're not going to take anything down. You know, it took many, many years for them to start allowing like the McDonald's was the big thing, right? When the McDonald's came in, that was huge because they, they, they fought like people fought this thing coming in. They didn't want it. And they're like, well, we're going to have, jobs for our kids and blah 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 no we can't allow this big corporate machine to come in here we got the dairy queen right <laughs> they're gonna run the dairy queen out of business and that i mean that was the thing <laughs> which which is also a big well but, but machine, it's a, a more but... of a local right i mean mcdonald's is nation yeah, this yeah. is more localized it started in minnesota so we got pride in that right um yeah. that kind of thing right right well, that's like when oh, Walmart yeah. came to town, man. Like, half the people liked it, and half the people were pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that moved in. And now, like, you know, they pop them up everywhere, and, you know, everybody just complains about the traffic. Yeah, you know, That's the, the thing nowadays. But, but it's funny to think about that. You see this happening, and, and you've got to realize that the, the whole premise of this movie is like, let's take the kind of adorable but total loser kid who lives in a loser town, and let's put him in this great grand adventure yeah, because why not i mean it's everybody can relate to it though because you and our sitting are doing it right and you get him to go home at night and we get to meet the rest of the mcflies of course there's the wrecked car <laughs> situation and biff and his dad and i i gotta say man like for me the thing that that holds this movie so well in terms of the comedy it's thomas elf wilson as biff is such a joy playing like the <laughs> yes. biggest a-hole in the world. And I knew oh, yeah. people like this, like growing up, I was like, he's like Biff, you know, and just the, the guy who definitely peaked around 11th grade and it never got any better than that <laughs> summer, you know, and it, it's just, he's living that every minute and torturing poor George and weirdo Crispin Glover uh, doing all this stuff. There's so much stuff going on with that when you meet the whole McFly family at home there and it's all about the wrecked car and it's Biff's mm-hmm. fault, but he blames it on George right. somehow, who, well, who yeah, goes along with George that. is a pushover, right? I mean, he'll, he'll do anything. I like how uh, he didn't have his reports done, right? Because Biff's his boss now, so he doesn't have his reports done. And then later, yeah. it's he doesn't have his homework done and back in 1955. So, I mean, you, you see the character. Biff is a great character, and he's a great character throughout this whole series, all, all three of them. I think they he's probably one of the highlight characters in there, just the different things that this that he does with that character you know going from um you know this bully to going to the kind of like um sheepish character that he becomes going to the you know rich guy back to the you know all this i mean he just does a great 
great job. And I like the character of Biff a lot. And I think, uh, but if we look at it, uh, look at the other characters in the McFly family, I mean, we don't really care much about the sister and the, and, uh, but I did like the line that they dropped where she was talking about going to some dance and the mom's like, Oh, you can't do that. Do you, that boys are bad. You, I never was in a car with a boy by right. myself. Right. And then right. later on it pays <laughs> off where she's like, what's wrong, Marty? It's not like I've never been in a car with a boy before. What? <laughs> right. They, they write the Leah Thompson character, Lorraine, which, by the way, heck of a job making a 23-year-old woman look like a 45-year-old oh, yeah. alcoholic. Like, it's that's some great makeup. But the, and, and for the 80s, and for it to still hold up is, is a testament to how good it works. And it wasn't like they were working on mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. It was cheap. But they made it work. But it's also the performance. And this is how you know Leah Thompson's a good actress. Is she, can, she can play both of those. And what's funny is that you go back and you find out <laughs> your dad was the same loser that you are. And your mom was the well, school slut. I don't know if she was the school <laughs> slut. Like, oh, but wow. I think she was uh, more of the, like... Um, a lot different than what you were told, right? She was a little right. more liberal than, than maybe she leads on. Well, isn't yeah. that the joke, though? That, like, the people that bang the drum for, like, don't drink and swear and have sex and be with boys oh, are the oh, people yeah. who did Absolutely. that when they were in mm-hmm. school. <laughs> so, I mean, you said yourself your dad was a troublemaker. I bet he was hard on y'all and not getting oh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because he's seen it, right? So, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's funny that the you, you see the parents do that. But that's a good joke. And it's it's neat to watch the family dynamics. You get the older brother who works at Burger King, and he's got to go do the midnight shift. So, you know, and then you got the uh, sister who's just basically waiting for a boy to call her, and she's rolling her hair at the table or whatever. And, it you know, there's all this family dynamic going on. And you, you realize, like, you look, and it's all in Michael J. Fox's face, and I really give him a lot of credit for portraying this. Is that he has got to get over that? I don't hate these people. I love them. They're my family. I just wish they weren't so lousy. <laughs> yes. And I wish we weren't so just pushovers. I mean, the principal says it to him in the hall when he busts him for being tardy. Is that none of your families ever remind you anything, either. and mm-hmm. they never will. Yeah, you're just yeah. another slacker. And the thing is, though, Strickland's not wrong. <laughs> Marty is a huge slacker. I mean, he really is. And you called it out when he comes back to his new life. He definitely looks oh, like sure. a slacker. Because mm-hmm. you know, he's the baby, right? You get away with that. But the whole, the whole thing is to set us up, though, to get us to the mall to meet Doc. And I, I got to say, man, I mean, again, I didn't know who Christopher mm. Lloyd was at the time. I've now seen stuff he's done before. Of course, many things he's done after. What a great character actor and just a great comedian to play this Alfred Einstein kind of wacko, you know, tour guide <laughs> through life that he gets to play in this movie. And when we meet Doc, it's totally not what you expect. That DeLorean <laughs> comes pulling out of that truck, and it's like, oh, it's the coolest thing. And then the goofiest dude ever, like lanky and everything, gets out of that car. And it, it's perfect that he's like two feet taller than Michael J. Fox. and he's, you know, he, But he's just kind of running around. He's got seven or eight pins sticking out of different places. And he's just, you know, he's like, he's what you'd think the wild side. Yeah, I mean, right? I love his, uh, his just over-expression uh, to everything like oh yes. goodness you know great scott how did i not think of this you know i mean yeah just and uh, my I mean, my favorite thing is the gigawatt thing i don't know why it just 
every time he says yeah. it, I just start rolling on wherever I'm at, laughing. Gigawatt, that's hilarious. Listen, listen, <laughs> as the as the son of a power worker, I got the whole like <laughs> rundown of like. Let me just tell you how that would not work, but it, it was funny. But even my dad like found that funny. That like the way he's just freaking out about that, and, and later in the movie when we meet Doc, it's so cool because we get again we get all the data dump. Like they spend time walking us through. Here's how the time machine works. And they don't, like, waste any time on, like, plausibility or any of that. It's just like, hey, this stainless steel body works, and I figure, you know, if you're going to blow all your money on a time machine, <laughs> at least get a cool car out of it. And it's got all this gear. It's, he shows him how he sets this and that, and you turn this, and uh, you just, you know, you got to do this. And then they send the dog back in time, or they send it forward mm-hmm. in time, a minute, right? And you get that great... That great moment where the DeLorean is in front of him and they're standing there. And I love Michael J. Fox has got the big, humongous video camera up and he just starts to inch away. Like, I'm not going to get run over by this <laughs> car, right? And the car comes and it disappears in front of him. And you get that great line, 88 miles an hour. You see some serious beep, you know, and then here comes the car and those cool flame lines. I mean, I think that was the thing every kid remembered that I talked to about this was, oh, man, I want a car that like goes so fast that it just leaves fire behind yeah, it. Yeah, that was all. That was the coolest effect. And I got to tell you, too. As a kid watching this for the first time, seeing the doors open like that, I'd never seen a car do that before. So that was, I was like, yeah, the I want a car doors. like that, you know. And of course, uh, you, you can't get <laughs> yeah. the Lamborghini or something. But uh, yeah, that was cool. I also really, really like the when it comes back, it's like just covered in ice. Right, it's so cold yeah, it's because cold. it's traveled yeah. so fast through time, and just Doc when he goes up to touch it, he's like, "Oh!" and then he's like, "What? Oh, too hot? No, it's cold." <laughs> he uses his foot to open the car door. Yeah, it's like the thing you don't yeah. expect. Yeah, right. And so they're they're yeah you know, they're playing around. The dog is is fine and is. Uh, and everything and they're, they're doing and he's starting to explain all of it and that's where we get the whole drop about it's plutonium and I ripped it off from some Libyans now that feels very 80s because that was very much the Gaddafi and all of that was in our minds we you know we were about to uh, do some skirmishing with them as as we'll say uh, here on the on the show and so that was something that oh you gotta have Middle Eastern bad guys that, that would be the ones to go to at this point and I love that Doc's whole thing was like well I just built my bomb with a bunch of pinball <laughs> machine parts in it and I'm like like they're not going to figure that <laughs> right. out real quick. <laughs> so here they come in their V-Dub conversion van, which is awesome. And, you know, it's the big chase. And you see Doc get shot. And, I mean, that, to me, like as a kid, blew my mind. Because I thought, here's this main character, and he's mm-hmm. just gone now. And the kid does every what every kid would do, right? You jump in the well, car and hit the He gas. tries to get away and, at first, right, and totally fails. But the guy's gun... Mm-hmm gets jammed and he that's when he's able to jump in the car and get out of there but what happened to einstein where did he go he he went into the truck and just hanging out i guess yeah i mean that last i saw he jumped in the truck and that was yeah that was it and good old um the good old ak-47 uh sometimes known to uh catch around in the wrong place (laughs) and jam up so it gives him just enough time to jump in the car and drive off, and then we do get a great chase scene. And we got we got to say too, though, that the music in this is mm-hmm. amazing. The way that the score just thumps throughout every bit of it and leads us down this whole journey. It's very, it's not John Williams, but it feels like it, right? Because it's telling you part of the story 
as the whole movie's unfolding and Marty's just flying around that parking lot and he's trying to get away from the Libyans. And what you what's neat, and this is some just smart filmmaking, is you see uh, Marty driving and he you know he throws the gear back which I my parents had a, a standard shift car and that's what my brother learned how to drive on that's what I'd learned how to drive on um, and watching my brother speed shift I just could think about you know Michael J. Fox dropping that down at the fourth and he hits the circuits and turns them on and it's almost like he well, doesn't he realize doesn't. what yeah, he's he done he has no clue right yeah yeah, and so you've got Alan Silvestri's score just pumping behind you, and he hits 88, and then all of the magic starts to happen around him. It's almost like the look on his face is like, I, I don't realize what's happening to me, and he doesn't really know. And I think that's the cool part is Marty does not choose to go back in time. It just yeah. happens to him. And that's that's what I funny agree, about. and that's the, you're totally right. He has no clue what happened. He was getting chased by these livings, and all of a sudden he's in the middle of nowhere. And it isn't until he gets out of the car and starts looking around that he sees the lion's uh, estates, you know, the the same uh, uh, entrance beams that are in there now, but nothing behind it, nothing but a road. Yes, yeah, a development. It, yeah, yeah, like you realize how close he lives to the mall too, because he's he's on the farmer's oh, that's land. The best. That the crazy guy trying yes. to breed the pine trees, he runs over one of them, lands in his barn, and he realizes that once he gets out of there, that wait a minute, I just drove over where the mall is now, but it used to just yep. be farmland. I, I love how they set that up too, and, you know, if, with uh, with uh, Doc telling him about how the the old man used to grow pine trees out here and this and that and. This used to be a big farm, you know, and and they set it all up beforehand, and then boom, there we are in the middle of that field in their barn. <laughs> I love the family's reaction. Like, right? What is this? Yeah, oh. yeah. The, the kids got the the space comic book, and he's yep. from out of space, and the dad shoot trying to shoot at oh, him with man. the shotgun, and uh, it, it's awesome. I mean, it's funny, you know, because it's all played for humor, and you've got Marty, of course, in the <laughs> yes. big hazmat nuclear suit, you know, <laughs> um, and he. he he looks like the spaceman Absolutely. from outer space that the kid's talking about. And so he tears out of there, like you say, and goes by his old neighborhood because it's daylight finally. And he jams the brakes. No, no, he runs out of gas. And that's what, yeah. yeah, he runs out of gas. There's no fuel. There's nothing left in the car. And he's like, oh, okay. So he has to park the car and he just hikes it into town. And what we get to spend the next four or five minutes doing is watching Marty tool around the same town square where he grew up or where he lives, but it's all shiny and new and it's all fifties mm -hmm. and it's blowing his mind, right? It's some good, it's some good filmmaking and storytelling though, with all the, the dress and the, you've got the ballad of Davy Crockett playing in the background instead of, you know, Sheena Easton or whatever it was before. And he's picking up newspapers and all this stuff. And he can't believe what he's seeing. It's the same town, but it's not. I love how town. everyone in town thinks he's a sailor, too, because he's got this vest on yeah, that looks like a life jacket on. to them. So, whoa, you're coming in from port. And he has no clue what they're talking about. <laughs> he goes into the 50s diner and sits down and, and he's asking questions. And the, and the, the diner, the, the, the tender behind the, dar the diner is hilarious. It's like, are you going to order anything? Like, I ain't giving you information for free, you know? Oh, yeah, I'll, t I'll right, take a exactly, Pepsi free. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, yeah, remember God. those, right? That didn't, uh, yeah, yeah, I remember that drink, though. Yeah, right? the back sugar when it was Pepsi. awful, yeah. yeah. But, but, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was not not a good not a good drink. Uh, but yeah, you, I mean, he had that, and you've got you meet Goldie Wilson when he's just a oh, when yeah. he's basically that was a kid, cool. and he's just mopping up, you know. And it's it's the but it's the joke of like I'm gonna be mayor and all this stuff, you know. And uh, but the big thing is you meet yes. George McFly. Mm-hmm. And we 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 talk about him much in the ocean, but we got to talk about Crispin Glover. This is a strange dude. All right, makes some really strange acting choices, but may have been the the just one of the great pieces of casting in this movie to get like the just that overwrought sense of emotion that he talks with and does every line with. And he's just so mm. nerdy, but he's desperately trying to be cool, but he just can't. And I, I don't know. I, I loved it. I thought him and Michael J. Fox across from each other, and then him and Thomas F. Wilson when Biff's picking on him, just have great chemistry together. They yeah, really the, that, that's one of the big things of this movie is that everybody who worked together had really good chemistry in all the scenes. Like, I don't think there's a bad badly acted scene in this whole movie as far as the dialogue and how they get it across well um everything looks relatable right like you you can believe this is how this was and how they act and all that stuff and i love the scene where they're in there and (laughs) and uh marty recognizes his dad and he's just staring at him and george is just like getting all tensed up like what the hell you got you got a problem <laughs> you know and, and yeah <laughs> you're george exactly. mcfly yeah <laughs> it's that yeah it doesn't know and then oh, here comes yes. biff and his crew i mean you, you gotta love it that he's got minions. oh absolutely too. he has to have minions <laughs> right probably around Right, yeah, a guy like that would have him in high school. The the bully would have him, and you know he's this. And he, you know Thomas F. Wilson again is kind of a big guy. He's a big buff guy, and he's you know he's he's crazy a lot bigger yeah. than Michael J. Fox and Crispin Glover. And so yeah, I mean you know again by Hollywood standards, he's he's six one, so he's a giant <laughs> <laughs> on screen. So you see him, and he comes in. He's got the flat top and the whole bit. And what's something that dawned on me watching this this time that I guess I just never had an appreciation for is how young everybody in this Mm. movie is compared to like all the adults are the same age as the kid lead actors, Michael J. Fox. They're all around the same age. And it's like, man, they're all in their early 20s. And they're just you can tell like this is their first thing for a lot of them. I think Leah Thompson had been in a couple of movies at this point. Um, Thomas F. Wilson had, had done like random stuff. And I mean, he had a heck of a 1985. He had this in April's Fool's Day. Guess which one everybody <laughs> remembers. And so, and, and then Chris McGlover kind of came out of nowhere. Michael J. Fox was a TV star and had done a movie or two, mm. but had never done this. And everything just kind of came. You know, from, but it's neat to watch them work together. And you watch all the dynamics too. And you also realize that even though Marty is a lot like his dad or does a lot of the same things as his dad, he's also not like his dad and that he will throw a punch. He will get in the mix of it and will scrap if he has to, because I guess because of growing up the the kid of a slacker and being told that your whole life, you kind of have to fight. And he's also, if you noticed, he's the smallest one in the family too. So he's had to Mm -hmm. kind of fight for it. Yeah. I like that too. I mean, you can tell there's so much similarities between George and Marty, but then like you said, uh, Marty has a little more of a temper, I guess you could say, and lets it get to him where George keeps it buried, right? He won't allow it to come up. Not not yeah. yet anyway, right? It takes a while. 
Well, he hasn't been he, anybody teach him to do it. That's the thing is you you never get a sense of who George's mm-hmm. parents are or anything like that, and they're not even like part of the story. Lorraine's family kind of is part of the story, but his folks, you know, nothing about them, and you never even meet them. I don't no, think, I don't think so the whole time. And yeah, and it, and what you realize is that they are almost no influence on him. You know that he's just kind of the weird kid, and whatever, grow up and go do something with yourself. You know, he's sort of left to his to his own devices, and he's everybody to to relate to. And Marty becomes his best <laughs> well, friend. Um, well, you know, over over, over, over the course of about of, six days, they know kind each of other. On the fence about this Marty guy who keeps following him everywhere he goes, right? Yeah, for a while, yeah. I'm talking about over the course of the film, they do. But yeah, at first he's like, I don't know who you are, you need to leave me alone. Uh, but I love this though, that we start meeting people and we get the we get the little setup because the, the sister, uh, Wendy Jo Sperber was the actress and she's long since gone, uh, but was a real funny actress and did a lot of comedy stuff. She would have been somebody that would have been like on Second City and SNL, that was her kind of thing. And she gets the great bit at the dinner table early, like, this is so stupid, Grandpa hit him with the car. You know, and like she just blows out the whole mm-hmm. parents meeting story that it's you know I know the fish under the sea that you know whatever and she's sort of over all of it and what you see is all the things that she kind of blew off that mom is sort of still romanticizing in some way you get to see yeah. happen to Marty now instead that's of the, his dad and we find out the reason his dad was there was because he was a really tall. good <laughs> yes that was awesome but I, I you know says someone who probably has heard this story a bajillion times knows all about it knows what has to happen for him to save his dad from getting hit by the car it's kind of like what are you doing and he's caught in the moment well yeah but you know it's, it's one yeah. of those in the moment things you know you don't think about it and you see it <laughs> oh, come yeah. to him later going like he hit he you know he, when he's telling doc later it's like you know her dad hit him with the car he hit me with the car <laughs> And he realizes, like, oh, no, I've now intervened into the timeline. And I think that's the other thing about this movie that is it's one of those things that, like, if you start pulling at the threads of it too much, Brian, it'll (laughs) completely unravel at some point. But it's sort of fun to pick out a little bit the time travel rules and things in this and how it works. Because what what we'll do, what really gets the clock ticking, obviously, Marty wants to get back home. So you got two ticking clocks. you got the... Uh, when he finally meets Doc and they figure out the whole 1.21 gigawatt problem, we'll talk about it in a second. Um, well, we got to get to the lightning strike of Saturday at the dance. Okay, so we got that. But also his family, like his brother and his sister in a photo he's got, start to slowly mm-hmm. disappear because he has intervened into their life. And what it would be, and the whole idea of like, if you could go back and change something in you know history, well, there's ripple yeah. effects to that, right? And I love that they they sort of open up the Pandora's box of the butterfly effect, but they don't bother to really explain any of it either because that would not be what this movie well, was about. I mean, they semi-explain it. I mean, Doc does give an explanation to him of why, you know, I love it. Doc, when he first sees the photo, what is wrong with your brother? His hand is missing, you know? <laughs> then he finally figures it out and they they, they understand uh, the more he interferes with the time, the, le- the more he disappears from the future. And so that's where we're getting at with that. And they yeah. do, I thought they explained it okay. I, they don't go into depth on it, no, but I think it was easy to pick up on what was going on uh, either way. But, um, yeah, you know, it's just, I like that plot piece because then you have something to look at. And again, you see uh, the the phone number on the back of the paper starts disappearing because 
he's not going to meet her mm-hmm. anymore, you know? Uh, right. Right. Because he doesn't exist. So, but that yeah. that paper then comes in handy because that's how Doc knows there's going to be a lightning strike on Saturday night at 10.04. We need to use that power to get the amount uh, we need to get the time travel going. Well, we got we got to talk about how he meets Doc too. So he finally, you know, he he basically gets assaulted <laughs> by his mother um, at her home. Like let's let's you know gloss over that uh, and the weirdness that is at dinner and all this stuff. And um, which I think is funny when he like leave bolts out of the house to run to wherever Doc's house is. Um, that uh, the dad says, "Lorraine, you ever have a kid like that? Yes. I'll never talk to you again or whatever." And I'm like, mm, "Well, she'll have three. So, but it, yeah. So anyway, so there there's that. Um, but he goes to Doc and. Of course, Doc is as weird and as strange as you think he would be in 1955. Um, but he, what I love is that Christopher Lloyd, it, it, like he takes some convincing. And I love how uh, Michael J. Fox in this exasperated moment just starts telling him, like, I, I know how you got that mark on your head. It's because you punched this into the time machine because today was the day you had the idea for the thing that makes time travel possible, the flux capacitor. And when he drops all that on him, that's just a bunch of gobbledygook. But it's the thing that, you know, uh, Lloyd's face when he opens the door back up, it's like, Oh, right. how do you know, you know, and he's just doing that, that thing again. Like you talked about just that big acting and it's so much fun. And then you get to watch doc a little calmer, kind of talk to Marty about it and figure it out. And, you know, he starts laying out for him all this stuff about the future that Ronald Reagan's friends <laughs> yeah, joke. And apparently, apparently Reagan oh, thought absolutely. that was hilarious and, and, and loved it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it is kind of, you know, so, but I mean, really it's, it's funny to think about, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we just had a reality star as president in this country. She's so like, anything's possible <laughs> nowadays. Right. But in 1985, the idea of, or 1980 when Ronald Reagan, that was, ran, that was deal, a big yeah. deal, you know, like, Whoa. yeah, exactly. So, but, but it's funny to hear all the jokes about it and hear him play it off. And you you see Marty trying to convince Doc of here's what he's got to do. And he's like, I got to have plutonium. And he's like, well, that's just not laying around. <laughs> you know. And, and he's not wrong. 1955, that would have been incredibly impossible yeah, to no, get a hold of. They just didn't use it for anything back yeah. then. It was governments had it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, governments it was had it. Bombs. it was the only one I mean, who had the only it. The, yeah. And it. And it would be in like large <laughs> quantities. Small you little couldn't tube, get it yeah. in like the refined Yeah, you couldn't get it in the refined power pellet yeah. that he was working with. And the whole one point twenty one gigawatt problem. And I love this whole idea though, that they know the historical society knows that the clock tower got struck at exactly this well, moment. I mean, that, you can find so that out he easily. Can, he can Yeah, yeah, but I love I love I watching Doc yeah. do all the little like faux calculations in his head of like, if we do this, then you can get there by this time. And it's fun though, because it it only works. I say in this movie, because they're not asking you to pull the threads on it and really discuss it. And because Christopher Mm -hmm. Lloyd is selling you on it so well that you just, you just buy it. It's, it's like, I mean, when they made a TV show out of this thing, like a cartoon or whatever, they had Bill Nye come on and do like science stuff with Christopher Lloyd, which was really funny because Bill Nye would be like, yeah, so it really wouldn't work that way. And he's you know doing the thing he always does, oh, which yeah, is absolutely. ruining everything that he talks about and making it not. Fun. It's like when when Neil deGrasse Tyson tries to pull apart a Marvel movie, I'm like, shut up! I don't <laughs> want you to do that right now. I just want to watch the movie. It's fun to watch Doc do it, and we kind of 
get with it. Well, like, you it's, gotta, it's cool. You got to remember, in 1985, yeah. nobody knew what a gigawatt was, right? I, well, they knew what it was, but nobody had seen anything like well, that, right? Yeah, power workers it, did, but yeah, yeah, nobody knew in, in 1955. Nobody knew what. Yeah, how what's you a could what's even a gigawatt? We're we're talking, <laughs> you know, kilowatts at the time is what we're we're dealing with in kilohertz and all that. Yeah, well, just being able to spool that kind of power up was something we were only doing in this country at that, like, we were starting to do that in Mm -hmm. the 70s, basically. We weren't, we didn't need that kind of power draw in the 50s, at least not in the, you know, commercial sector. And so I love, though, that we have the two ticking clocks, the... We we've got to get to the clock tower, but we got to fix oh, the yeah. mom and dad Otherwise, problem. Otherwise, there's no future the to go to. Tower. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You go back to the wrong future, which is a problem they will play with mm-hmm. later on. And so the Marty's problem is I got to get George to ask Lorraine out. So the, you know they kind of scope out the school, and obviously George is a huge loser, and this is never going to work. And Lorraine's cute, and that, no, like you wouldn't put these people together. And I, I, what I love is how Marty keeps trying to convince him to ask her out. And he's like, no, I'll, nobody on this planet can get me to do it. So he puts on the hazmat suit, throws his little Walkman headphones on him, and, and uh, rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. Your band didn't want anything to do with this movie, but you as a prince decided, well, I'll write you a riff for the, for the flick with no pay and no credit at all writes this just jamming eruption thing that blows George's head off there in bed. I've, I've always loved that little bit, and I think it's so much fun to watch uh, Marty do the whole Planet Vulcan, Darth Vader, Eddie Van Halen riff. I do, too. Um, I just love the, the fact that they drop all these, like, throughout the whole series, they'll drop these names. Calvin Klein. Uh, she calls him Calvin Klein because his underwear mm-hmm. say that. When, like, who wears underwear with their name on it? I, I don't know. Um, you got, you know, Reagan, <laughs> uh, starring Reagan in the movie, and Reagan as the president. You got um, just all sorts of different things that they pop in there. So I really like that they do that. I think that's cool. Darth Vader, like, y- y- we'll talk about some of these inconsistencies and, and why they don't remember certain things. A little bit later. Um, but that yeah. was when I was like, well, why would you use Darth Vader? Why can't you just mix it up with something else? And, you know. But 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 in 1985, man, there would have been no badder dude. Because you're like, oh, and I, and I get Return that, of the Jedi. But, mm. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's, it's all the pop culture that an 80s kid and the audience at the time would know, right? You'd know Van Halen. You'd know. And, you, and what you knew about Van Halen was that if Eddie Van Halen started tearing off on something <laughs> really crazy and it was going to be incredibly loud. And if somebody from the fifties heard that they would not know what to do with it, yeah. as we will see evidence later on too. But, but it's all a big joke and it gets, but it like convinces George. He's like had a religious experience from this now that I must ask her out, you know, and he, he tries to write her this poem and all this. And we get one of the coolest sequences when he's, when Marty's trying to get them to hook up at the diner or whatever the next day. <clears throat> And um, Biff comes in and intervenes, and then they kind of have the chase around the town yeah. square, where uh, Marty gets like the faux skateboard. He invents and, the skateboard, as will be a uh, <laughs> yeah, he basically invents the skateboard, right? Um, and in that chase again with great Sylvester music, we see a common end for Biff as he winds up covered in a pile of dog after, after wrecking his car. And, but it's a great comedy moment and it's a good action beat too. In the midst of all this. It is. I, I really enjoyed that. I love the fact that Marty intervenes on dad's behalf, right? By tripping Biff and then 
totally changes it from George centric to Marty centric with Biff, and they just have a real good, uh, real good scene. And I love the kids where they're on their like homemade scooters, I guess you would call it. I don't know what you, what those are. And he comes over yeah. there, and he just rips the top off and says, "I'll be right back," and uses it. And they're all just like, "Whoa, look at him go!" Yeah, and, nobody and, would have seen. You know, that. of course he's yeah. grabbing onto the backs of vehicles again and doing his little thing, getting away and all that stuff. And yes, the manure is the best, and I love that they keep that going throughout the series. <laughs> You've hit on something though too that we've also now like given mom yet another reason to be completely oh, infatuated yeah. with this boy. He's nothing like anyone else she sees. He's so different and he's just oh, he's such a dream. I think she says, you know, all this and I love watching Leah Thompson just fawn over him and as an audience member you're going like you're watching a mother fall mm-hmm. in love with her son. Like this is kind of <laughs> a little weird, right? And it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, but the idea of like you could see uh-huh. why she would George is a total wuss and, and doesn't do this anything. This guy's the coolest kid and ever. Everything Marty does is the cool. Yeah, he's the coolest mm-hmm. thing ever, right? He can do stuff nobody can. He's magic, right? I mean, that, and that's the whole point. Um, and it all leads up though that we're gonna we're gonna have this whole thing at the dance because it, as it turns out, uh, as fate would have it, the. Um, Enchantment Under the Sea dance where the parents meet and kiss and all that is the same night as the lightning storm. So Doc Brown's got his whole little setup downtown and there and he, you know, he's getting away with it. <laughs> and Marty's going to take mom out and he's going to try to take advantage of mom in some way. This, that's, that got really That's the best thing. Like, they like, did. What are you going to do? They did such a good job with yeah. that too because, you know, he's all like, I'm going to be taking advantage of her. You're going to come in there and you're going to tell me to get my hands off her and knock me out and this and that. And, he, and, when it comes time to do it, <laughs> she she pulls out a bottle of booze and takes a swig, and he's like, "What are you doing? You should you should not drink alcohol." And he's trying to you know tell her you know in the future don't drink alcohol because you become an alcoholic. And then she pulls out a cigarette, and he's like, "You smoke too?" And then it comes time where she admits that <laughs> yeah. she's been in car with boys before, and he's just like, "Like oh my god, I can't believe this." Yeah, you're having your mind blown, right? That all the things your mom harped and, on you about not doing, yes, she and did. And then it comes to all the point of, it. Of, the, of the movie where <laughs> he has to do this now, and he's like, I can't do this, man. I can't do this. And then she's like, come on, Marty. It's okay. And she goes in for the kiss, and the look on Marty's face, when and that's the best. She looks up oh. at him while she's kissing him. He's like... I think the, I you might find this really weird, but it's almost like I'm kissing my brother. No, not as weird as you think. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, I mean, it's but that oh. that is all on those two again. Leah Thompson and Michael J. Fox had play that oh, yeah. perfectly together, where it's it's cute, but it's also awkward, and it it says everything mm-hmm. the audience is feeling in that moment. And just when you think like he's finally getting bailed out, because here comes George over the mm-hmm. door. Nope, Old Biff <laughs> is back, and and this this is where things get fun because now you're like as an audience member, you're stuck into that moment. Like, no, the timeline's going to get screwed up. You can't like it's so tight, mm-hmm. you can't mess this up. So they take you know the the goons take Marty off, <clears throat> throw him in the back of the car of the band. We'll get to them in a sec. And uh, uh, Biff goes in for some inappropriate moments with uh, with the he's Ray, doing what like, Marty was supposed very to be doing. Right? To watch. 
Yeah, and yes, exactly. So George finally yep, realizes what time it he's is. He's not paying attention. Rolls up. Mm-hmm. And this this is the moment where you finally realize that George finally the thing that sets him off finally is that not only does he like Lorraine, he he thinks she's pretty and all this kind of stuff. She's great, but he doesn't know anything about her, right? But it's the fact that this jerk is doing that and then pushes him down and acts like, you're not going to get in my way and stop me from what I'm doing. I love the way Crispin Glover's face just turns blood red. He wraps up that, you know, knuckly fist. But Biff has him like locked in and he's like giving up. Right. And it's not until he knocks Lorraine to the ground that he's like, that that everything changes. That's when you see the face change and everything else. And yeah, Yeah. just really good, really well done. Uh, And that's when, you know, all of a sudden, she's like, my hero, and everything from there. Right. And then they go to the dance, but they still they still haven't yeah. had the kiss or anything. So we, we haven't set it up. They're playing the band. They got Marvin Berry <laughs> and the Starlighter. Supposed to be cousin. Chuck Berry's, like, you know, cousin playing. And they're playing. They're playing kind of some cool, you know, early 50s rock music, which is kind of neat. And they're taking a break, and they throw Marty in the back of the car, and it's just kind of a drop line. These guys oh, are getting yeah. high. I mean, they are in that car, blazing it up. They walk out, puffs of smoke. But what I love is that these tough guys in high school see these men <laughs> stand up, and it's like, oh, we better get out of here. These dudes are going to kill us. Like, it's just, there's just a difference of about 10 years there, and it's like, mm, these guys are probably going to have a lot of fights. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. These little white kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I, lo- I love this. they got to get Marty out of the, the thing. The guitar player cuts his hand, which I don't really know. Well, I think they were works, using a screwdriver to get the, the door open because the keys were locked in with Marty. And I think he slipped it and it cut his hand as yeah. he was opening it up. Because he, he does play that. Okay. He, I've he always wondered like, oh. what he did. Mm, you yeah. know. Yeah. So they, they have to get back in there, and Marty's like, no, they got to have the dance. So Marty gets to play guitar at the school dance, finally, <laughs> right? Wish fulfillment, right? Again, he's getting what he wants, but he's having to play, like, Earth Angel, the song yeah. he would be playing. Earth, Earth Angel's a good mm-hmm. doo-wop tune, by the way. That's, a, that's an underappreciated little tune. But... Um, it's, I mean, he's, he's playing, I've actually played that at a wedding before, by the way. Um, so Marty's in there playing and even some other, you know, ginger loser tries to go and intervene, <laughs> yes. you know, for, for Lorraine and, and George knocks out yet one more kid. I'm like, George has like become, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, at the end of the night, yep. like everybody loves him, right? He's the hero. He's, he knocked out Biff and. You know, they're all having a good time. But that's when he smooches L- Lorraine and all, all the people reappear. And it's, it's the one effect that probably doesn't hold up is, is Michael J. Fox. Yeah, well, you got to set, you know, yeah, set that up, too. Yeah, you got to set it up, too, as he's playing Earth Angel and all of a sudden he can't play because his hand's starting to disappear, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah, that was the one effect that didn't mm-hmm. work very well. And when he looks at his hand and it starts fading on him, eh, it could have done a little bit better than that, I think. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm... If it's the one problem, oh well. Um, it, it's actually probably the best they could have yeah. done in 1985. Like you wonder, like in subsequent times, why they haven't tried to clean that up. But yeah. I guess it's just one of those no reason to change just what it, it now, is. you know, things. But um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, what are we going to do, George Lucas, everything, and put some extra people in well, the back? Lucas and, and Spielberg are so tight. Not, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are, but uh, one of them uh, doesn't do that, thankfully. Uh, that was Spielberg's monkey with some of his old movies anyway, too. But anyway, so they come back, they play the song, the kiss happens, and then we get the cool scene of Johnny B. Good. And I, I got to tell you, like, I remember watching this 
and thinking, and, and this is again before I started playing guitar, but I've now had two instances in this movie where I'm like, if this is what playing guitar is like, mm. sign <laughs> me up. I am down for it. And I remember when I learned how to play that song years later, thinking, man, this song is freaking impossible. Why would you pick this out of everything that you could show your chops? Uh, but it's it's a I guess, man, but it's a blast, man. They're, they're up there. And give it to Michael J. Fox, um, who does a really good job pantomiming along and stuff. And he's a guitar player, but he's not that. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. Uh, the, the, I mean, he lays out everything, man. You get Pete Townsend. You get a Lady Van Halen. And he starts just tearing the house down. And what's funny is exactly what we talked about with the Eddie Van Halen tape is if you played your music for oh, your yeah. parents' crowd when they were your age, Mm-mm. they would not get it. <laughs> because it is something that is so just you. It right? is. It is. And I take a few issues with this scene uh, for one. Uh, first of all, he's playing a Gibson 335-ish guitar, uh, which wasn't really around until 1956-57, and the, the 335 itself didn't come out till 58. Johnny B. Good wasn't written till 58. Yeah. I guess you could you could play that off because well, see, that's, he that's the point though know, is they hadn't heard it yet, but still. Well, you, you got Marvin on the phone oh, calling his Chuck, going, yeah. "You heard?" And now this? Chuck rips off this kid <laughs> then, playing at the dance for the music, right? Yeah, there's something weird about the, about the white kid teaches the the yeah, black no. man the rock and roll. Like that's a little uh, that didn't play as well as as maybe you want it to. But yeah, uh, I don't, I like it, man. I've always thought it was a fun scene, and the fun part of it is when he he finally hits that last note bend, and everyone <laughs> has staring stopped, at him, and they're all just looking at him like, "What are you yeah. doing?" <laughs> I guess you're not ready for that yet. Yeah, and great line, you <laughs> but know, your kids will love it. Yeah, your kids will love it. Yeah. Yeah, so we we got to get back though. And the other thing that happened, it happened. We saw Marty writing it before, but now Doc finds it. Is he's written this letter for Doc because he's trying to let him know, like, hey, look, you're going to get killed if you don't do something different. And I, Doc will have none of it, right? He's, he tears it up. But I, and I noticed this this time because I've often wondered. I'm like, God, how in the world would you ever find the pieces of that letter? He again? puts it in his pocket. But if you watch. Yeah. When he's doing it, the lightning hits and stuff. He yep. sticks it in his pockets. And it, so I'd always thought like he threw it away and then found it later. And I was like, oh, he had it on him the whole time. It just by happenstance, he shoved it in his pockets. And it's, I don't know, it's it's neat to think about. Um, you can also start doing some mind tricks with yourself is that you realize that like now that this loop has been created, you don't know when it happens, right? That this doc knows he's got to hang on to that because he'll need it mm-hmm. in 30 years. Like at some point he becomes aware of that. You, you, again, you can drive yourself nuts trying to think about that stuff. But I do love the whole race at the end and is he going to make it and doc's trying to pull the plugs back together and i mean it's it's perfectly timed that it's one of those like last second looney tunes i boom i slam them together just as the lightning hits just as you hit the the wire the trip wire and go back in time and um i wanted to ask you this though because marty comes up with the idea of like well if i go back like 20 minutes early i'll have enough time to save him right why not go back earlier than that I mean, is it just because of spring? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure why he chose. I think it was 10 minutes early is what he chose to do. Um, 
But I think he fi- he probably figured he had enough time, not thinking that he stood there for t- for ten minutes learning about the stupid car, right? So it's not quite enough time. Right. Uh, but what I really love about that whole piece is when he goes, like, if it didn't work, he's crashing head on into that whatever it is on the end there. Yeah, and what I, what I yeah. love is that when he comes back, he crashes head on into that theater right there, and it's exactly <laughs> yeah. So what what I love is when he comes back, Hill Valley oh, yeah. is still a dump, all right, except for one place that we'll get back to in a sec. But he's got to get to the mall. So what's neat is that the car is dead. Like, it doesn't work, right? Like, he's out of gas again at the theater, so he has to take off run into the mall. That time machine, where does it go? <laughs> because it's still sitting there. Do they go pick it up? I mean, I assume they do. Because I would assume the they do back. as well, uh, because so, Doc has it, obviously, right? So I assume someone went to pick it up, and yeah, I, and they just didn't show that part of it. Who knows? Because you got to remember... Hill Valley does not look like the kind of place you could leave well, a car. But you got to remember though, that Marty wakes no up in his house again, it. right? So someone took Marty home. Yeah. Right. Well, so the doc, the doc probably I mean, took him home and went and got the... Because so. yeah. uh, he knew where he was going, right? He knew exactly where it would end up. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what? Actually, now that you say that, he's in the DeLorean with him when he takes him back home. So they do go get it. I just think it's funny that he leaves the car. And I'm like, this is not the part of town you would leave the car. Yeah, nobody's out. With the keys in it. Even if it's not starting now, somebody <laughs> will get it started. Well, the bum on the on the seat was out. Uh, but yeah, so he gets there. He sees the whole thing go down again. We watched the replay of the beginning of the movie. And I love Doc's whole like, eh, what the hell? You know, and what's funny about that is you're like, yeah, the first time this happens, Doc has to has to make that choice. But at some point in the time loop of life, as it happens, he realizes like, no, I, I really have to save that letter. And so he has to build the, ne- the 1955 doc that Marty has interacted with that puts that letter back together. You assume mm-hmm. he does it the day after probably. Right. Realizes I now have to play out the next 30 years based on this moment. Like everything I do has to lead up to that. And I have no more information than what I had before. So I just have to go forward knowing that I'm going to get to do this and that this will happen. But on this night, I'm going to wear the flak jacket and hope that these guys don't go for the head. Um, and I mean, really, yeah. that's the, that's the, the gamble. Of all it's this, a gamble. Right? Anytime you're wearing a bulletproof vest is you hope they shoot in the right spot. <laughs> but because uh, he didn't tell him exactly where he gets shot. So who's who knows? Yeah. It's, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about like the 1955 doc that we spend time with in the movie is now aware of things that he didn't know before. So he knows like, I've got to make it to this night at that mall with that kid. I have to befriend that. Kid well, do you, do you think somewhere on um, the way, do you think that he kept the pieces and didn't put it back together until 1985 like he was supposed to? Or do you think he actually put it together right away and read it? I think so? I think he put it together right away and because it's so aged and everything. I think he put it together right away and preserved it because it's got like a, yeah. a paraffin wax on it. And I think he did that to preserve it so it wouldn't fade and go away. And so he could He's got it yeah. to go forward with. And he spent a whole, I mean, he spent a week with, I mean, again, it's technology he has no frame of reference for, but he will build all of it. So it's in his head somewhere anyway. So he actually gets to see what he's supposed to build 30 years before he builds it. 
So you wonder, like, did Doc also kind of go like, you know, instead of blowing the family fortune, maybe I'll invest in that Apple computer thing and have a little bit of extra dough on the side. You know, you never know, right? Well, like he's that's, not told that's one of the how things it you works wonder about. at all with Marty. He can see it, but he's not actually told yeah. how it works. So he still has to build it. So maybe he wasted his family fortune still trying to figure out how he built that thing. He knows what it looks like, but... Well, my... My my thought is though is yes he knows what it looks like but it's not like he is a stranger looking at somebody else's machine he's looking at the machine that he has dreamed up in his head that he has dreamed of he just doesn't have the parts for it yet but now he gets to see how it works it would be like if if you took um uh, uh, someone who invented something if you if you took Edison earlier in his life you took him the finished light bulb and let him have it before he actually got to it. You know, the billions of times that he you know, messed it up, you know, that story that he you know failed a hundred mm-hmm. times before he got it right or whatever. If you let him see it long beforehand, he may not understand it completely, mm-hmm. but it's in his head. Right. So he gets, he's actually seeing the representation of what he's going to do. It'd be like, um, if, okay, well, we've talked about Van Halen. If you took 10 year old Eddie Van Halen aside and you played him Van Halen one and two and said one day in about 12 years, you're going to make that. You know, and it's probably in his head at that point. Now he has, he has to work no towards idea, it, right? Yeah. Right? It's, right, right. So it, cha- it changes the Doc dynamic, though, because we never know why Doc and Marty became friends. We don't know how any of that happened. But what you can sort of loop in your head with the time loop part of this, the fun part of this of unraveling the yarn, is to go, Doc knows he has mm-hmm. to become friends with that kid. At some yeah. point, no matter what, like he's got because that's going to be part of their their future together. It's, you know, it's kind of a neat paradox. You start pulling at it too much, it will make you go like, eh, it didn't really quite <laughs> all work. But it's sort of fun to have that you know thought exercise to come with. What I think is funny is that he takes Marty home, and Lion Estates is still kind of a eh, suburb on the way down, <laughs> but the McFlys live there. It's the same house. Like there's nothing different about it except the interior furnishings, which Marty wouldn't right. notice at two o'clock in the morning necessarily but nothing else <laughs> is different about anything except really successful people live there and i've often wondered i'm like why would they live in the same place if they're as successful as yeah. they're supposed to be like that, something about that just has always been like it would be it would have been funnier and they do play this in a later movie if he went to that place and it yeah that would have been pretty cool like he yeah, woke up that would have been interesting um <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't know i mean you would think that if they had the money maybe hill valley is just a dump in general and when they bought the house it was a nice house and they kept their part up and the rest of the, <laughs> the neighbors didn't i don't know the neighborhood went down it's the reverse of the michael myers neighborhood but that one house went bad yeah, but everything right? else looks well, great right everybody let it go I, I don't know it's it's funny but it's neat to catch up with our characters again as successful adults now it's funny you know dave and the sister you know they're still at home or maybe they just came home to eat breakfast with the rents you never know but i do think it's funny that that dave is like i always wear a suit to the office and i'm like it's a saturday bro like i hate your job i feel you because i've done that too i'm like oh man dave i'm sorry you gotta go to work on saturday man dang yeah that, that sucks so but yeah I just I, I think it's, it, that's funny to play again. You get George, you get his novel, which is basically the, the, his son and you know and the the Eddie Van Halen, uh, Darth Vader moment uh, that he's had. And wh- I've I've heard it explained like this, and and I think it's a pretty good explanation. It's like how do these people not know like years later like oh, that's our son looks exactly like that guy that hooked us up yes. in high school or how with Darth Vader? Well, the writer explains it like this. Go ask anybody to remember a random six days of when they were in the 12th grade. 
and said they probably won't be able okay, to pay any I will, detail. I will buy that argument. And, if it wasn't yeah. the time the parents met, the most important time that they <laughs> in their life, right? So if it were yeah. any other time, yeah. I could totally buy that argument. And some of the details absolutely could be left out. No problem, right? Darth Vader probably wouldn't remember that name sure. very well, whatever. But the person who introduces you to your future wife, you remember that. You just do. And the fact that you you, you name think? him Marty, mm-hmm. right? And he's Marty there. Mm-hmm. Ah. And then Kelvin Klein comes around. <laughs> well, now that one, that one I could almost blow off as like, well, but I mean, how many, there might be somebody else in the world. But makes underwear like, with the name on the it. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It, it is one of those, again, you start pulling at that thread too much, Brian, and it will, it will unravel in front of you. This movie is not yeah. infallible. Uh, in that, but it that is that is one of those things that like the more you watch it and you start play with that stuff, you go like, how does that not work? But the answer to it is because it it has to, like that's that's the thing. And what's funny is that you see Marty and he's the that's why I said this movie is so weird because our protagonist is the same person at the end as that he is at the yeah. beginning. He has no arc. He doesn't change at all. And for all we know, he's the same. Well, he has to be because kid. he hasn't. Yeah. He's the only one who hasn't changed in the time because he's the same person that he left as when he came back because he's the same guy. He, yeah, he but changed not himself everybody because, else. But and he maybe he's supposed to change himself, yeah. but he wouldn't know that because he's the same guy traveling back right. and forth. I mean, it's, it's not like he yeah, got left somewhere and then all of a sudden, yeah. boom, he's different when he comes back. I don't know. It's funny. It's funny to think about that, right? So, but we get, we do end on a great joke. I mean, that great Toyota four by four thing, right? We, that he's sort of lusted after in the opening scene. There it is. It's his truck. Uh, we see Biff, who's a total schlub now. I was like, oh, it's a, yeah, yes, sir, Mister McFly. Two waxes, no problem. You know, and and all that. Um, and he he's Jennifer's there, and he's just like, oh, I missed you. And she's like, I, I yeah, I saw you, you act like you haven't seen me in a week. Why are you freaking I haven't. Out? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I lo- I love though that they end this movie on one of the best jokes ever. And I remember in theaters, man, thinking like, "Oh, what a cool way to end the movie." Doc shows back up. They, they've also they've solved uh, it, whether they were thinking about doing sequels or not at the time, and they all claimed that they weren't. They they solved one problem. They're like, "We got to get rid of this plutonium problem." <laughs> so he's got like the the trash compactor in the back mm-hmm. now to run the you know, run the time machine with. And it's, we got to do something about your kids. And I love the line of like, oh, where we're going, we don't need roads. And the, the dang thing takes off. And I was like, that was the coolest thing ever. And again, seeing it in theaters and then seeing it years later on VHS and home video and stuff, you get that to be continued slide in. But when it came out, that wasn't there. So the movie flew right into Huey Lewis back in time. And that was it. And hmm. you thought that was the end of it. And it's it's neat to watch it now, knowing there is more to come. Even though they've removed that out of some of the you know more recent releases and stuff of it, but it just ends on a big joke of like, let's go out here and we'll go out. Yeah, and fly I did like that too. I, I always, and of course, I saw it late years later. Probably I can't remember what year it was. I saw the movie, but I, I don't. I want to say that two was either coming out or out when I first saw the first one, or that I can remember any seeing anyway, seeing the first one. Uh, so I knew what something else was coming next. And you're, you're saying that what is there seven years between one and two? Yeah, there's, there's, there's seven years between the so first 92, one and the second one. The second one and, came out. 
Yeah, when they, when they made when they made this movie, there was no Dice. intention to do it. It's hard for me to believe was, that was, because they set shot. it up so perfectly to have yeah. a sequel at the end. Even if the to be continued isn't there, but, they still set it up perfectly to go mm-hmm. on a next adventure. Well, to hear Bob Gale and Zemeckis tell it, and they've told this story for years now, so there's no reason not to believe it. I mean, well, even if they've just decided this is the story or whatever, is that they wanted to end it on a joke, and they were mm-hmm. kids like George Lucas, like Steven Spielberg, who grew up in the era of the 50s and 60s cliffhangers. And sometimes there wasn't a continuation, but you thought mm. there might be a new adventure. And it was just the idea of like, it's an adventure movie, so let's leave on a joke and, eh, you know, let the audience walk away and go play pretend mm. as to what that might have been, where they were going to. And it, it's only, I mean, again, when you watch it and you know that there are sequels, you're like, well, you know, they're obviously setting it up. But in, I'm telling you, man, in 1985, that wasn't there. And it, we all walked out of the theater thinking, well, that was it, because we didn't think about sequels. The only thing that got made sequels at the Tom Brown were horror movies. I mean, this was Friday. That was what Friday the Thirteenth did. Like, you know, good movies, horror movies didn't do and that, Star quote, Wars, quote. right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but Star Wars was one of those. Like, there were years in between them, and it was the saga and all that, you know, crap. And and this was this was this kind of movie you didn't do sequels to. Yeah. You didn't do sequels to comedy movies back then. And if you did, they were almost always bad. You know, like people just didn't do it. And and there was usually years between them. And it'll be fun to come back and talk about part two and part three next because they were made at the same time, essentially, because they made them back to back just to you know do them um, and good story as to why they did it that way uh, when we come back. But it's it's fun to watch this movie now and try to put yourself in the mindset of like if there never was anything else. Like mm. what a great ending! It's a great, satisfying ending. You just you end on that, and again, you you go into a great Huey Lewis song, um, which yeah, is great fun. soundtrack. Back in Time's a good tune. It, it's not It's not as good as Power of Love, but it's a good tune. I mean, it's a great ending credits tune. You're walking out, picking up your popcorn, and going wild. I agree. Uh, this is one of my favorite soundtrack of all. You know, it's just a phenomenal soundtrack. They did a really good job picking the music. Uh, Huey Lewis really shines in this. I mean, this is really what made me like Huey Lewis's music, right? These two tracks, yeah. That's what made and everybody like it. the the sports yeah, album, yeah. and it's just gone. You're just Huey Lewis rocks, right? Um, exactly, yeah. And I mean, and, and they'll tell you like that. That's they were trying to make that kind of music for years, and it just mm-hmm. came along at the perfect time, you know, for each other, and it and it worked. We're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Brian, what are you? Well, I don't think it should come at any surprise. This is an extra large popcorn for me. I just this is one of those movies, like you said, Jay. We get out and we watch it at least probably once every two years, and most of the times every year for us. And it's just one of those that we really enjoy. Um, my oldest really likes this movie, so he sat down and watched it with me for this podcast and really enjoyed that. My wife wanted to watch, but she's busy you know, doing this whole school thing. And um, so she didn't have uh, the ability to watch with us, but we really enjoyed it. He's already looking forward to watching part two so that we can keep going. And he, he's excited about that. So yeah, it's one of those movies. And my other kids, uh, the, the youngest really probably doesn't remember anything about this movie. And the middle kid just is like, kind of like meh (laughs) on movies. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. He's not into it. Well, I think that's funny though, that you were able to share that with, your kids, because I think I told you at the beginning, like this was mm-hmm. a thing for like me and my folks to go see, and it's and, and I have a, such a distinct memory of it because again, it's the first movie I got to go see 
you know, after the accident. And so I'd, I'll always remember it for that. And, and having been a kid who had gotten hit by a car in the there middle of go. the suburban road, seeing that happen is like, well, okay. It worked out a lot better for Marty <laughs> than it did me for a while. But, you know, I, 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 it's extra large popcorn. I, I think we telegraphed that early on. This is in the top five I think of for my me favorite too. movies all time. All time, yeah. I mean, and, and it's because it's just so much darn fun. You know, it's it's just a ton of fun, and and it's also fun to kind of pick at the threads of it and try to wrap your head around, you know, what does Doc know? When does he know it? And how does he figure this out? And how does that? And you know, you can have those conversations all day, and I yeah. think that's what makes this movie fun, is doing that kind of stuff. And but if you just watch it, just to sit and watch it, like I watched it twice for this review, and the first time I watched it, I I stopped taking any notes or anything. I just sat and just mm-hmm. sort of let it wash over me. And this movie is just one you can you just get lost in, and it's a lot of fun, and it's it's rare to find something that has aged as well as this thing has. You know, it's well over thirty five years old at this point, and it's still as good as it was the day it came out. And uh, you know, they they, uh, they toyed around for years. There were all these talks about oh they're going to do a reboot and all this stuff. And Zemeckis, Spielberg, and Gale have said not as long as any of us are alive. And apparently, Michael J. Fox has some control with the studio too. As long as he's around, they'll never do it. Uh, and honestly, I don't know how you could because there's no fun in the idea of taking a kid from now and throwing him back in the 90s or the 80s. Like, it's, it's not as fun as taking a kid from the yeah, 80s. Yeah, it's not quite as big was. of a drastic change uh, as it was from 80s to the 50s. I mean, that's a huge change <laughs> in culture and everything. The central crux of would I be friends with my parents, you know, when they were in high school? The answer no, now no. is yes. Like the kids are friends with their parents, you know. It's just part of the culture which has changed, and that's that's why that's what makes this movie so much fun is that you realize they got it right the first time, and you can't redo it. And I I like finding movies that I don't think yeah. are remakeable. You know, even though Hollywood will try to remake everything at one time, you know, that's the old joke. There are some things that they probably won't because you just, it wouldn't work, right? It's just not going to be as good. Um, it, it's funny, man, what this spawned, though. Again, this was a huge, huge hit. You can't lay out enough how big making $300 million on a movie yeah, like no this doubt. was in 1985. Just go back and that listen is, to that, our that podcast on 80s movies and listen to how much money they made and yeah. how big of a success that was and then compare it to this. This would be like a Titanic type thing now, you know, million, a billion yeah. dollar revenue type thing. Yeah, this was what, like, your major franchise, like, Star Wars made this kind of money. Nothing else made this kind of money. And, you know, now it's it's easy to take for granted every movie's a $100 million budget or more, and it, it's got to make half a billion dollars to, you know, make money or whatever. They made this for $19 million, which was a lot of money in 1985, but it wasn't. It wasn't so much that like right. the studio was going to go down if they didn't make something out of it, and it made it back in spades. And just a great one and a fun one to revisit. And I'm really, really curious and interested to go back to these sequels, man, because like I say, it's been a good 10 years mm-hmm. since I watched them. I don't have the fondest of memories of them. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to go with an open mind and try to see. But I've, I've always said just in talks with you know, film friends or whatever that this is one of the movies I always hold up as the example of did not need a <laughs> sequel. And I'll be curious to see if I feel that same way about it after watching the next two. That like if you just watch this one, you're fine. You know, where, whereas some other movies like, yeah, I want a sequel to it, you know, but 
this one, I don't know. I don't know that I ever wanted one, but mm-hmm. we got two. And so we'll talk about them uh, in the coming weeks. Going to be a lot of fun. Always fun talking about them with you, Brian. Folks, you can find all of our episodes. Go to filmstrippodcast.com. That'll take you to the anchor.fm site where you can find feeds to Google, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, wherever you can find podcasts. That's where it is. If you go to our social media at filmstrippod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you'll find our link tree. You can find links to all of our cool stuff, our YouTube page that we've started now. Uh, if you like and join, follow our Facebook page, you can check out our occasional Facebook lives that we do with fun people that we meet uh, around the internet and chat it up with and also interact with the hosts there. We appreciate your support. So until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstream. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.